Okay. Alright, it's I believe it's recording. Okay. My my thoughts over the past couple of weeks have just revolved around how Christianity and following Jesus uh really don't make any sense to the normal person. Like Whenever you read about something that Jesus said, or a lot of these stories in the Bible, they seem like they come from opposite world. Everything is upside down and back to front. When you just look at a situation logically, from a logical point of view, it doesn't really seem to make any sense. Following Jesus a lot of the time doesn't seem to make any sense to the normal person, from a normal outsider perspective. And I'm going to prove it through um, a couple of different New, New Testament and Old Testament examples. Um, in the Old Testament, there are a lot of wars that were fought. A lot of wars that were fought um, with Israel, who are God's people. They fought people, people fought them, and people tried to invade their country heaps of times. Many, many, many of those victories that they won, they had no right to win. There was one time when an army invaded Israel or was on the border of Israel about to invade. And there was this man named Gideon who was a coward. And God said, you're going to be the one who leads my army. And it was said that it wasn't just one king who was trying to invade Israel. It was, I think, five or six kings who had come together and put all of their forces together and they said, we're going to attack Israel as one. We all hate Israel and we're just going to destroy them. And it said that the, just the camels of that army ate up all the green grass outside the borders of Israel. Like, they literally, it describes them as being as many as the sand. So when you stood there and just looked over their army, there was men as far as you could see. Just insane. And here's this man, Gideon, who's a coward, and God says, you're going to lead my army. So he brings all the army together, and somehow they're convinced that they're going to follow him, and First, there's thousands of soldiers, 10,000 soldiers come out to begin with. And then God's like, no, I don't want these guys. 10,000 is too many. You have too many to fight this battle with. And you're like, wait, what? Too many? Lord, there's, there's more people than like we can count. 10,000 isn't even enough. What do you mean that we have too many? That's ridiculous. And he's like, okay. Go to the river and just ask these men to take a drink, okay? And whoever drinks, like whoever puts their hand in like this, cups the water, brings it up to their mouth and drinks, don't pick that person. Instead, pick the person who puts their whole face in the water and drinks the water like that. And he's like, okay, fine, I'll do that. 300 men do the face putting thing into the water, okay? And it's actually described as like drinking the same way as a dog, like how like the dog puts the tongue in the water of the cat or whatever. So it's like it's just a very weird way to do things, okay? So I don't if I were going to fight a crazy army, I wouldn't want these particular guys to be on my side who drink in like such a weird way, okay? I'm not out of ten thousand, these are not the three hundred that I would pick. But God's like, okay, take these guys, take these three hundred. Go outside the borders of the camp, okay? Take these lanterns, break them, and shout really loud, and you're going to win the war. <laughs> like, what? Are you serious? Like, that's, that's how we're going to win? 
And they did. Not through the strength of Gideon or the 300 men he had against an army that could not be counted. But because God put the terror of Israel into their minds and into their hearts. So what happened that night was all these men in that army while they were sleeping in the tents. They were thinking this God of Israel is so strong, is so powerful and we're not going to be able to defeat them. They're going to destroy us. And internally in here, they were unraveling mentally the whole night. And so what ended up happening is when Gideon broke those lanterns and when they shouted as loud as they could, that to those men was, oh my goodness, we've lost. They've ambushed us in the night. We're all going to die. Run away. And every single one of them fled and left their tents and their swords and their spears, just ran for their lives. They bolted and they lost the war against 300 men. There was another story of another war where it was against this land called Jericho, which later became the Jerusalem that we know and is mentioned and Jerusalem that is now. And it was surrounded by a wall and the wall was so thick that they, could, that they actually built houses back to back on top of the wall, like an entire house with a garden and like space around it on top of the wall. That's how thick this wall was. So it doesn't matter if you had a battering ram, there's no way that you're going to go in. And so God's like, okay, I've given you this land. It's going to be yours. Here's how you're going to win. You're going to take the army, right? But you're going to put the priests at the front. You're going to start singing worship songs. You're going to go around this city seven times. You're just going to walk around. The worship team are just going to play some worship songs, right? And the army isn't going to say a single word. You're just going to walk around. And on the seventh time, you're just going to shout really loud as if you've won, as if you've had the victory. And once you do that, the walls of Jericho will fall. Is that a normal like military strategy? Just think through it for a second. Does that seem like a logical way to win a war against an impenetrable like foe, enemy? No, makes no sense. Like you've got people singing, you've got like warriors just marching around and they're close to the wall, they could be shot from the top of the wall. Like it makes no sense. They do it anyway. Sure enough, on the seventh time, the wall crumbles and the city is theirs. They march in, they storm it, they take it, and the city is theirs. On the other side, there were other wars that I'm not going to mention. There's, heap, there's like 50 something wars in the Old Testament where Israel had more men than the opposition. A lot more men. They were a much bigger and much stronger force, and they lost. The only difference between them winning and losing was God. Is it logical to fight a war when you don't have enough men? No. But do men count when you have God on your side? Not really. Because that's not where the victory is. There's another very, very famous story. Again, I'm just saying what I've been thinking about all week. When the Israelites came to the Red Sea, who remembers the Red Sea? Hands up, who knows what happened at the Red Sea when Israel walked up to the Red Sea? Who knows what happened? Hands up. 
you all need to go back to Sunday school. I'll tell you what, okay? Israel was, um, was captured by the Egyptians. They were slaves to them for 400 years. And then God freed them. And Moses led them out. And after they were freed, Pharaoh was like, I can't believe I let all my servants go. What a stupid thing that I did. I'm going to pursue them and I'm going to get them back. And whoever I can't get back, I'm just going to kill. So after Israel has walked out of Egypt with all that they have, they've got carts and chariots and kids and cattle. and all. It's like almost a million people who marched out of Egypt. Or just over a million. I can't remember the exact number. And they get to the Red Sea and suddenly they look back and the entire army of Egypt is coming against them. Remember, these are old men, women, children, and some young men. Like, There's nowhere to run. There's a desert on either side. And then there's the ocean behind you. Where are you going to go? There's no way out. And there's an army in front of you. You're trapped. There's no way out. There is no logical scenario where you can escape from that. Beg for mercy. And just ask for your life because there's no way. Do you remember, have I jogged your memory now? Do you remember what happened after that point? God says to Moses, walk into the middle of this sea and the stick that you're holding in your hand, put it into the center. And guess what's going to happen? It's going to part for you and you will cross to the other side unharmed. Who would have thought that that would be a logical way to escape? To the outside man, that's it. You're dead. There's no way out. There's no escape. But God says that's not the case. I'll get you out. There's a story that we put up on Tuesday about a man named Naaman who had leprosy. Leprosy was an incurable disease until recently, actually. Um, and still people... A lot of people around the world are suffering from leprosy. Some people here have been to places where leprosy is rampant on missions trips. And this guy was a general and he had leprosy and he wasn't an Israelite. But he was told that there was somebody in Israel who could heal him. And so he went and the man of God told him to go and wash, to dip into this river seven times. Like go under and come up, go under and come up seven times and you're going to be healed. And this river was called, I don't know, Sil, Silom, Sil, I can't remember, I can't pronounce the name. And it was known for being like a dirty creek, basically. It's not like, it's kind of like the Yarrow, it's just brown and rubbish, right? Like the Yarrow is not pleasant. And it's like, okay, go dip in this dirty river to become clean. Does that make sense to any of you? No. Dip in this dirty river and you will be clean. Seven times. Do it. He resists at first and he's proud, but at the end he does it. And he's healed. He's cleansed. We move to the New Testament and here we'll, we'll pull up some verses. There's the five loaves and the two fish. Who knows that story? Well done. Rachel just walked in, puts her hand up. Full respect. Jesus went out to preach and these people came from everywhere to hear him. 
and they were like kilometers and kilometers away from home and they'd actually stayed for a couple of days to listen to him and they hadn't eaten anything and there's no way that Jesus and his 12 disciples are going to feed 5,000 people, right? This, this, you know, can barely feed their own families and they've been away from their own families for a long time. How are they going to feed 5,000 people? This little kid walks up to Jesus and he's like, hey, I have five loaves, five pieces of bread and two, two fish. I don't know what you're going to do with them, but here you go. They're for you. Out of those, Jesus makes enough food to feed 5,000 people with 12 baskets of full of food to spare. <laughs> Sorry, just got sidetracked. This is amazing. It is amazing. That doesn't make any sense. To a person from the outside, okay, how, how are you going to accomplish all of these things? The numbers just don't add up. Five loaves and two fish don't feed 5,000 people. It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. But these are the things on the outside. What about the spiritual principles of Christianity? Because I'm getting to a point through all of these stories, I promise. I'll, t- I'll tell you the point. Sue. Um, can you open to Luke 9.23, please, Emmy? There are a couple of Christian principles that are just all backwards, all back to front. One of them is deny yourself and you'll find fulfillment. In other words, don't go after what you want and you'll be fulfilled. The world tells you the complete opposite. Hey, you want it? You only get one life. Bam, run after it. Get it? That will make you happy. That will fulfill you. Run after that success. That's what's going to make you happy. Jesus says the complete opposite. Thought it would be up there. It's not. I'll turn around again, hopefully. Did you find it? What's wrong with that? Oh. Okay. Do it. The old fashioned way. Luke 9.23 says this. Then he said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He's saying the path to fulfillment isn't an easy one and isn't a life where you pursue the things that just make you happy. No, it's, it's involving a cross. It's involving something difficult. It's involving giving up your own desires and the things that you want most and doing the things that God wants most. Do you want to know why that's going to lead to your fulfillment? Because God is the one who designed you. God is the one who created you. God is the one who set out the plan for your life. God is the one who knows exactly what will make you happy. Who knows exactly what will fulfill you. And I can promise you that it isn't riches or women or men or whatever it is that the world is running out. It's only found in actually following Him, in getting close to Him, in having a real relationship with Him. And in doing what He wants instead of what you want, you will find that fulfillment that you've been looking for. That's one of the principles. John 12, 25 is another principle, and I'll read it to you now. John, is it, no, it's not working. John 12, 25 says this. He who loves his life will lose it, 
And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, the person who values their life here and clings to it as if it's like the best and last and greatest thing that they're ever going to have is going to realize at the end of it all that it was empty and that it was ash. Because the Bible teaches that the one after, the life after this, is eternal. It doesn't end. This, this here is just a temporary thing. We're passing through. This is the gateway to the next one. But what we do here matters in the next one. But if we think that this is all there is and we indulge ourselves as much as we possibly can in this life, we'll get to the end like so many people that we've heard of. And we'll say, was it all worth it? I have everything I've ever wanted. But it didn't satisfy and it wasn't enough. But when you don't think much of this life, and when you realize that, hey, it's not the end, and there's something so much greater coming afterwards, the little pleasures that catch your eye every two seconds, they don't matter anymore. They're not as important anymore. They take a backseat. Because you know that what's coming is so, so much greater. There's another principle in, oh, I just wrote 2312. I don't know what book it is, so I'm just going to tell you what it is. The path to exaltation is humility. All these things are backwards. You want to find your life? You're going to lose it. You want to be great? Be the servant of all, is what Jesus said. You want to be exalted? You want to be glorified? You want to be the person on top? Then be the least. Then be the most humble. Be the lowest. Be the servant of everyone. Which is exactly what Jesus was. The path to greater wealth is giving, biblically speaking. There's a verse in Proverbs, I, I didn't pull it up, but there's a verse in Proverbs that says that there's a man who hoards much and who brings in little, but there's a man who gives much and brings in much. In other words, the person who gave more got back more. And that's not always in terms of material things. The person who gives more of themselves gets back a lot more from other people. What about resistance of sin? This thing that we call the flesh in Christianity. Normally, in logical, normal life, right? When something is hard, you just work really hard to overcome it. But in Christianity, it's the complete opposite. God says, surrender so that you can be saved from this thing. And I'll give you an example. This is how I view sin. Sin is like quicksand. And you're standing right in the middle of that quicksand. Do you know what happens when you struggle to try to get out of quicksand? You sink further and further. And its grip on you is tighter and tighter the more you struggle. But if you just stop for a second. And reach your hand out I say, and say, I need help. Somebody who is not bound by that quicksand, who is standing outside of it, will reach their hand in and pull you out when and only when you stop struggling. But we think, okay, I've fallen into this sin today. Man, that was really bad. I'm going to work so much harder tomorrow to not fall into that sin again. And then it happens again and it gets worse and worse and you're like... Oh my goodness, I'm never going to get out of this. I'm never going to escape it. 
I'm just so bad all the time and how can God love me? And all these questions start getting into your mind. But remember, following Jesus is a world of opposites. To escape, you have to be still and let Jesus pull you out. The world says that you should believe in yourself. That's like the greatest kind of motto of the 21st century like that you'll ever hear. Like, believe in yourself. You can do it. Like every Facebook post is some motivational, inspirational thing about how you can do it and how you should have faith in yourself. I'm going to, sh- I'm going to open up um, Hebrews... 11. I don't know how many of you have read Hebrews and I don't know how many of you have read Hebrews 11 in particular, but this chapter is basically what I call the Faith Hall of Fame. It's all these people in the Old Testament and, and then in, actually they're all in the Old Testament who just followed God without reservation, who just believed that it doesn't matter whether it made sense or it didn't make sense, they were going to get through it because God said that they would. And they accomplished amazing things. Not a single one of them did it by believing in themselves. I don't believe in myself. I know exactly who I am. I know how weak I am. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And there's another verse that says, in him we live and breathe and have our being. Do you know what that means? It means that the only reason that you're sitting here tonight and the only reason that you're still alive and breathing It's because God allows it and because He's not finished with you yet. Just to breathe, just a breath in your lungs comes from God. So how arrogant of me would it be really to say, I can do this and this and this and this and this on my own. I can overcome. Yeah, it's all me. These men believed, but they didn't believe in themselves. They believed in the power of God through them and in their lives. And through that, they did amazing things. There was a man named Daniel. You all know his story. He chose to obey God instead of bow down to an idol that the king had made. And the penalty for that was death. And so, death in that circumstance was, they got Daniel and they threw him into a pit. And they rolled a stone over that pit. And inside that pit, were a few very, very hungry lions. In fact, they were starved. The way that they did it, they kept these lions minimally fed, just alive, basically. So that whenever they threw someone into that pit, before they reached the ground, usually they would be devoured and torn to bits. They threw Daniel in there. For a whole day and night. And they just left him in there with these starved lions. The king feels horrible the next day. And so he rips the seal off the door and he rolls the stone away. And he says, Daniel, that the God you trust in save you. And Daniel replies from inside. God sent his angel and he shut the lion's mouth. And I've come out unharmed. Does it make sense to you that Five hungry lions, or however many there were, wouldn't devour a person when they haven't been fed for days. Does that make sense to you? No. Does it make sense to you that a man named Abraham 
God would call you now as an old man, not a young man, as a man who'd established his life in this land, who had a family and who had possessions and who had work and said, come out of this place and follow me. I'm going to lead you somewhere. And he's like, where, Lord? And he's like, come with me and then I'll show you. Leave everything, move out of this place, then I'll show you. And he lives his whole life following God, not even knowing where the final destination is. Isn't that crazy? There are so many more of these in here, in Hebrews 11 and in other places. But I want to read you a verse from Isaiah 55. And it it's basically sums up what, what this whole message is about. And then I'll explain why I said all of this. Isaiah 55 verse 8 says this. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And as for my thoughts, than your thoughts. Basically, God is saying the things that seem to make such perfect sense to you are not always the things that make sense to me. This is the God who created the universe. This is the God who did all of this. The laws of physics don't apply to this person. The laws of time don't apply to this person. So when the Israelites come up and say, Hey Lord, there's an ocean in front of us. How are we going to cross it? That's not a problem for him. Because he created that ocean. And he can simply make a way straight down the middle of it. When they say, Hey, we don't have enough food. How are we going to feed all these people? That's not a problem for him. Because he created those fish and he created the, the wheat that made that bread. When you say, how can I find a job or how can I get through year 12 or how can I find the right person to marry or all of these things. Is that a problem for God? When we know that he's already done all of these things. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. You see, none of these things make sense to the world because to the world, this God that we believe in is a figment of our imagination. He's not real. And if He wasn't real, then any of this would be idiotic. An army of 300 men being led against an army that cannot be counted without God in the equation would be idiotic, would be suicidal. A person leaving their home and their family and their work to go into the desert to an unknown destination without God in the equation, we would call that schizophrenia. And he'd be a crazy person who's uprooting his whole life to go somewhere that he has no idea where he's going. There are so, so many of these stories. And not a single one of them makes sense without God in the equation. But, as soon as you put God in that equation... All of it makes sense. All of it makes perfect sense. Because it doesn't matter what the numbers or the odds are or whether it makes sense or whether it doesn't. If God is in the mix and He tells you to do something, He has the power to push it through. And He has the power to deliver on His promises. 
I'm just going to end with this. There's a verse in James 2, verse 14, that says faith without works is dead. Very bold statement. just says faith without works is dead. What does that mean? It means if you believe something, you really believe something, you're going to act on that belief. If Daniel says to me, okay, after the meeting, meet me outside, I'm going to give you something, right? And Daniel goes outside and says, I'm going outside now, can you meet me outside in five minutes? I'm like, yeah, sure. What am I going to do in five minutes? I'm actually going to go outside and I'm going to meet him. Because I believe that he is actually going to be where he said he was. Makes perfect sense. I hear something, I believe it. The next logical step for me is to act on that belief. You've heard through the songs and through the message and through all all the preaching that you've heard growing up and all the things that you've seen. That this God that you serve is great. That He's not bound by anything. That He's all-powerful. And that on top of all of that, He loves you and He wants the best for you. What James is saying here is if your belief in all of that isn't strong enough to make you act, then you don't really believe it at all. That's what James is saying. These men in Hebrews 11, what makes them special? Is that when God said something, they replied with, yes, we'll do that. Because we trust you. We actually believe that you will follow through on what you said you would do. And so they stepped out in faith, knowing that God would be there on the other side when they answered the call. And because of that, they lived extraordinary lives. So my challenge to you tonight is do you really believe all of this? Do you trust in this God? Do you know who He is? Do you know who He is to you? Do you trust Him enough to surrender your will to Him? To surrender your life to Him, your decisions to Him, knowing that He'll take control of it, knowing that He'll lead you the right way and that He'll never let you down? Do you trust Him enough to actually act? Words are cheap, guys. Do you trust Him enough to actually step out in faith? Believe me, if you do, there will not be a dull moment in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are the God of the impossible. Nobody who has ever trusted in you has ever been put to shame. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that your ways are higher than our ways, Lord. We don't understand everything and we don't always see the full picture. But you always do, Lord Jesus. And we thank you so much that you're the one who leads us and you're the one who loves us, Lord. I just pray that tonight, Lord, we would all be encouraged just to look to you, Lord, and just to... To really remember who you are, Lord, and to trust in you enough to actually act, Lord, to hear your voice, Lord, and to not question it, Lord, and to not think of the impossibility of it, Lord, but to trust that you are enough, that you are more than enough to satisfy all of our needs and to lead us without ever leading us astray, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much for this time that we've had, Lord, and we just pray that you'd be with us 
for the rest of this night. In your precious name, amen.